This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 39. In this episode, I will continue to tell stories about people who attempted to walk around the world more than 120 years ago. In many cases, they scammed the public. I will explain how the scam worked and share captivating tales of those called around-the-world freaks. In the last episode, episode 38, I covered the very early attempts to walk around the world. By 1895, dozens, if not hundreds, of walkers joined in on a around-the-world-on-foot craze. For many, it was a legitimate ultra-walking attempt, but for most, it was just a scam to travel on other people's generous contributions. The typical scam went like this. They claimed that they were trying to walk around the world to win thousands of dollars on a wager, but they had to do it without bringing any money. They needed to be funded through the generosity of others and get free room and board. Walkers came out of the woodwork, and the newspapers were fascinated by these attempts. Eventually, some of the press started to get wise. These walkers started to be referred derisively as tramps, globetrotters, or around-the-world freaks. One reporter wrote, A great majority of these wanderers upon the face of the earth are men who would rather do anything than work. Another astute reporter identified many of these walkers as, quote, frauds traveling over the country practicing a smooth game in order to be wined and dined. There were too many of these globetrotters to even mention. This episode will share some amazing and bizarre tales of the naive, those who failed, the cheats, and the fakers. In the next episode, I will share stories about the successful walks around the world. Those that went in pairs usually went the furthest. In 1894, two men from England started a walk around the world on a route that would cross through Canada. Samuel Wilson and Horace York, both journalists, started their east-to-west walk from Lincoln, England in 1893. They were required to finish in an unrealistic 18 months. They could not spend any money on food or clothing, but had to depend on the hospitality of others they met. They first walked across Britain to Liverpool, took a steamship to Quebec City, Canada, and then walked the railroad tracks to Montreal. Wilson was asked why he was really doing the walk. I am engaged by the Sydney Bulletin for certain purposes that when my books are published, I shall of course receive remuneration for them. Why was he going without money? I believe a man can go anywhere with civility. You hear a lot of nonsense and tomfoolery in this country about savages, but I have never been seriously molested by them. The two continued their walk across Canada, going from railroad section house to the next, day by day. They never camped out as they made their way to Calgary during the winter. It was useless to carry food or water because both would become frozen. Neither was there any wood to build a fire, so they must make the distance between section houses in a day's journey. At November at Winnipeg, they were kindly provided complete buckskin suits of clothing to withstand the rigors of the winter. 
Wilson would visit all the police departments in the cities and would collect buttons which he sewed on his coat until he looked as if he were studded with brass nails. After arriving at Seattle, Washington, seven months into their walk, they had intended to take a steamer to China, but because of war violence breaking out there with Japan, their passports were suspended from traveling there. They decided to head to San Francisco and then travel to Singapore via Hawaii. Two months later, the two arrived in San Francisco and claimed that they had walked 6,000 miles, a significant exaggeration. Their journey on foot was soon abandoned and the two took a railroad handcar to Fresno. At that point, the two had a falling out and a split up. York said Wilson disappeared and took all their joint possessions with him, leaving York destitute. The railroad took pity on him and gave him a job. Within a few years, York was appointed Chief Inspector of Railways by the London Board of Trade. Nothing more was learned about Wilson. Some of these world walkers were truly mentally unstable. A man from Ada, Ohio, known as Professor Samuel Wesley Shockley, announced in 1894 that he would walk around the world in five years. He left Pittsburgh with nothing, wearing only a suit of newspaper clothes. He was arrested before getting out of the city and his trip ended before it started. About a year later, he was again claiming to be walking around the world. At Portsmouth, Ohio, he became drunk, was arrested, and tossed in prison. But Shockley refused to work on the city stone pile and tried to commit suicide in his cell. The city authorities became tired of him. He decided to abandon his walk around the world and said he would go home. But later in 1895, his trek went on and he even got a passport. He said that as a child, he had been stolen by gypsies, lived with them for many years, learning to read palms. In 1900, he was walking around the world again, and in Pennsylvania, he was put into a prison cell where he tried to hang himself again, and then was committed to an insane asylum. In 1906, he was walking across the country again in Ohio. A month later, he was arrested again and tried to commit suicide in prison using an electrical wire. It was said, Shockley has attempted self-destruction oftener than any other man in the country, and although twice nearly successful, he has always been saved. Finally, in 1922, while in Great Falls, Montana, claiming to be a Civil War veteran, he was picked up off the street, paralyzed drunk. The jailers were war veterans. The sergeant and corporal put the old veteran to bed and sounded taps. Nothing more was found about Shockley. Henry Thompson, originally from England, claimed that he started his walk around the world in a paper suit of clothes, but they were soon torn to shreds in the wind. He first was mentioned in the news in New York in 1894, and never was seen very far away from there. Probably in order to answer questions why he was always seen around New York, he eventually changed his story that he must walk five times across America, once through Canada, and then once around the world. Four years later at New York City, he said that he was finishing up and only needed to walk back to San Francisco. For his world walk, he said he had stowed away on a ship to Liverpool, England and walked across Europe, Asia, and Australia. His tales included narrow escapes from death when he was shot six times and once pierced by an arrow in Egypt. During that visit in New York City, he was walking with his dog Prince. While in a saloon, Prince disappeared 
and when found again, it had been painted a bright red. Thompson got in a fight with a man he had accused of painting the dog and was thrown out of the saloon. He was admitted to the alcoholic ward at Bellevue Hospital. Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania had a sense of humor and wrote, It was hard to tell whether he is a demented golf champion or strayed from a Maine lumber camp. Very likely both. His coat is a corduroy hunting jacket while he wears a flannel shirt. So far, so good. But here comes the rub. His trousers are tucked in a pair of golf stockings which look as though he waded knee-deep through a Hungarian rainbow. They are awful. He has the rubbery gift of storytelling, too. After unfolding a tale of lengthy dimensions, he smiles that ten-cent kind of smile and moves on. Thompson claimed to have more than 17,000 receipts from telegraph operators along the way. He had worn out 28 pairs of shoes and 243 pair of underwear. In 1898, he made very slow progress in Pennsylvania and New York, spending many nights in jail. He was last heard from in Elmira, New York in August 1898. William H. Bourne was an Englishman by birth, but also a U.S. citizen. In 1895, he traveled by the name of Dick Whittingham and started walking around the world, west to east, pushing a wheelbarrow for a wager of $10,000 to finish in three years. He claimed that he started in San Francisco, California on April 5, 1895, without a cent. He planned to earn his expenses by selling pictures, displaying advertisements, and giving lectures. I have to register at every railroad section house and post office on my route, and at the capital of every state through which I pass. Whittingham traveled with a cat and a dog, and could not cut his hair during the trip. He would forfeit $500 if either the cat or dog died. Americans did not first understand the amusement of the Whittington cat connection. In English folklore, a wealthy merchant named Dick Whittington lived in the 1300s, had risen from a poverty-stricken childhood, and made his fortune through his cat that was skilled in controlling rodent problems in the rat-infested country. The story became a famous play. Whittington planned to push his wheelbarrow across America and across Europe, Asia, and Australia. His wheelbarrow weighed about 75 pounds and up to 150 pounds with his luggage and the animals. The press commented, Compared to the others currently walking around the world, he must be given credit for more originality in his outfit than any who had preceded him. Whittington adapted the wheelbarrow so that it would work well on the railroad rails. It has a large wooden wheel in front and a second wheel following it closely. Both these wheels have flanges so that the barrel can be pushed along on one rail with very little effort. The vehicle is covered with canvas and presents the appearance of a diminutive prairie schooner. This is the home of the Captain Dog, on whom so much depends in Whittington's undertaking. Whittington experienced challenges in the West. I had a terrible tough time crossing the desert and came very near starving to death, having so nearly a week subsisted on nothing but rice. The railroad section stations were very far apart. The men stationed there were usually Chinese and lived on rice. When I pulled into Salt Lake City, I was nearly naked and so badly used up that I was forced to go to the hospital. I placed my cat and dog on exhibition and made money enough to pay expenses. Thank you.
Whittington's cat died near the border of Colorado and Kansas. It had struggled with the altitude and poor diet going over the Rocky Mountains. I gave my cat a funeral, but I had to officiate as gravedigger, parson, undertaker, mourner, and all. Most from the little town turned out for the ceremony. They located a burial plot behind the hotel, obtained a cheese box to be used as a coffin, and manufactured a tombstone that was appropriately inscribed. Finally, a fence was built around the sacred spot. Whittington reached Topeka, Kansas after struggling in the rain across the plains. He had a large rattlesnake skin wrapped around his hat and several large rattles dangling from his hat buckle. While he was some distance away, the man passed a party of boys who gazed at him in open-mouthed astonishment, but he paid no attention when they called to him. When the man reached the depot platform, there were about 20 people there to meet him. The dog stretched himself on the platform, panting from weariness. After seven months, Whittington arrived in Chicago, still traveling at a believable pace with plenty of witnessing news articles along the way. A review for one of his lectures was unflattering. The speech and interests were sadly lacking. This did not deter the long-haired freak from extracting a collection of over $7 from the audience after a rambling account of his trip east. People remark that they may give money to whom they please, but may they? Feeding tramps has been logically condemned as an eventual injury to the vagrant himself. Whittington reached Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in February 1896, but sadly two months later he was still there in a hospital in critical condition from a bad attack of a respiratory flu virus and hemorrhages brought on by exposure. Fourteen months after he started, William H. Byrne Jr., also known as Dick Whittington, died in a Philadelphia hospital. He had traveled across America in what appeared to be a legitimate attempt, but sadly lost his life because of it. John Thaler of Montreal, Canada started his planned seven-year walk around the world in 1895. He was originally from Austria. In 1892, he immigrated to Canada. Not long after arriving, he was amusing himself with some friends doing tricks with a chair. While standing on his head on two chairs, one gave away, he fell and struck his left eye. After that, he lost sight in both eyes and spent the next 18 months in a care center. Thayer said that he made a pilgrimage to a Canadian Catholic national shrine and that his eyesight was healed enough to walk alone. He then conceived of the idea that if he visited the greater shrines of the world, he might fully recover his sight. He thought the matter over all winter and settled details for a long walk. He would have to walk because he had no money. He was known to be a man of high character and sounded like a legitimate walker. His planned route would take him to San Francisco, Japan, Hong Kong, across Asia and Europe, and then back to Canada. As Thayer was enjoying free room and board in Wisconsin, the story of his eye injury had changed. Thayer was a clever blacksmith in the employ of a railroad at Montreal. One day, a piece of iron flew out and destroyed his eyesight. In time, he was able to see a bit with one eye, but he was unfitted for work, so he decided to get as much pleasure out of life as possible by making a trip around the world. 
While in Minnesota, he was making himself a public nuisance, being drunk, and was arrested for robbing a saloon till. He was sentenced to 25 days in jail. After being away for a year, Thaler reached Nebraska. He was now telling people he lost his eyesight from a fever and a very long illness. In Colorado, he complained that Grand Junction was a bad town because they weren't being generous to him. The newspaper wrote, Thaler is in the tail end of the procession of a fad that is worn out. Why people should feel obligated to contribute to someone's fad, we cannot understand. Salt Lake City commented on his strategy. He carries no money, but more than offsets the lack with a prime quality of nerve. When he enters a town, he goes to a hotel, tells the proprietor who he is, and says that he wants to stay with him. His strange appearance causes the tavern keeper to desire a chat with him, and he is welcomed. In Nevada, he had walked 40 miles through the desert without food or sleep. He finally reached Wadsworth, Nevada, and was so happy that he took out a pistol and fired it in celebration. He was arrested for discharging a firearm and spent 60 days in jail. After nearly two years, Thaler arrived in Los Angeles claiming that he had walked more than 7,000 miles. His story about his eyes changed again. He claimed to be an electrician, had an accident working, and was totally blind for over two years. Four months later, he showed up in Kansas. He still said he was walking completely around the world, but why did he reverse direction? Kansas was skeptical of Thaler. Some advanced the idea that the fellow was a fraud, traveling over the country practicing a smooth game in order to be wined and dined. By his three-year anniversary, he was touring the South, claiming to have a book deal with an Italian publisher. He changed the length of time for his trip from seven years to eight years. At the four-year anniversary in 1899, Thaler was in Texas. He still claimed to be heading toward New York. He was last heard from in Louisiana. His walk around the world finally stopped for some reason. Other walkers continually changed their stories as they traveled. Fred Colbert was from Wisconsin. In 1895, he started from Kewanee, Wisconsin to walk around the globe. A large crowd gathered to see the start made, and the proceedings were enlivened by the presence of the city band. The young man was gaudily attired, upon the breast of which were the words, Fred Colbert, walking around the world three years. On his head was an immense white cowboy hat. His town was so proud of him. He planned to head to New York, then steam to England, and use the usual southern route across Europe. It was reported that he started without a cent, but could solicit donations to pay expenses. Well, plans changed, along with his story. Two months later, he was in Minnesota to the west, getting free hotel stays. What? He must have taken a wrong turn. His story also changed. He said he started from Boston, Massachusetts on the day he had actually started from Wisconsin. He also changed his starting story, falsely saying that he started wearing only a paper suit of clothes. He was covered from head to foot with medals and advertisements written in nearly every nook and corner of his person. He said he was heading for San Francisco, California instead of New York. Strangely, after three months, he reversed course in Nebraska. As he neared home, a Wisconsin newspaper got wise. 
He was telling newspaper reporters that he had already been around the world and he was finishing up. Colbert is a gorgeous fake. He left Kewanee less than six months ago, got as far as Nebraska and is now coming back, spinning weird yarns of countries he has never seen to every credulous listener. He is a lazy bum and the truthfulness was lost the first day of his trip. A few months later, he was in Buffalo, New York, claiming to be finishing a trip across America from San Francisco. A young man with knickerbocker pants and his breast covered with souvenirs of all kinds attracted some attention this afternoon and was made the butt of some jests of onlookers. People here think that fools are not all dead yet. After more free hotel stays in upstate New York, his farce concluded, but a couple weeks later he was back home in Wisconsin admitting that his walk around the world undertaking was somewhat too big. Colbert continued to scam the public on a few more walks in the following years. Fred Colbert eventually found real work as a machinist helper for the railroad, married, raised two children, and died in 1950 at the age of 76. And then there were those who spent nearly their entire life pulling the Globetrotter scam. In 1896, George Harold who was known as the Boy Tramp, appeared in the Midwest United States claiming that he had been walking around the world for 10 years since the age of 13. He said he needed to walk 65,000 miles within 10 years to win $10,000 and he was nearly finished. He claimed to have visited all the countries in the world except for Canada, Greenland, and Siberia. He told fantastic stories, including meeting Queen Victoria, and he displayed a large collection of curiosities, including a piece of rope that President James Garfield's assassin was hung by. Harold claimed that his wager was made with the California Athletic Club in Oakland, California. An Oakland newspaper did a little due diligence on the story. The Athletic Club no longer existed. Its former director in 1887 had never heard of Harold before. No one in Oakland claimed to be friends with Harold. He will have trouble in finding his relatives, for they have long since changed their residence in Oakland and are nowhere to be found in the city. Harold's story quickly changed. He said he had started from his home in St. Louis, Missouri, and then that changed to Newport, Kentucky, and then he started from New York City. One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning, down the track came a hobo hiking, and he said, boys, I'm not turning. I'm headed for a land that's far away beside the crystal fountains. So come with me, we'll go and see the big rock candy mountains. In Kansas, it was reported, quite a crowd heard his story and many believed. He told it without wincing and never cracked a smile. He may be what he claims. One rustic standing nearby exclaimed, Be ye lying boy, or be ye the devil himself. He kept up his scam for several years. The rope fragment soon was from the rope that hung murderer Cherokee Bill. Oddly, his 10-year journey that was supposed to have ended in 1897 was still happening in 1902 when he was pulling his scam in Afton, Illinois. 
George Harold is a greasy specimen of genius hobo, imposing on the credulous and representing that he was walking around the world. His appearance indicated that he had not washed since he started on his trip nearly nine years ago. In 1903, he changed the story to be a bet to travel 15 years. In Indiana, it was stated, Almost everyone here knows Phony the Boy Tramp. Harold kept up his wanderings from town to town in the Midwest, telling his changing stories until 1908, when he died in a jail in Indiana at the age of 35. He was thought to be drunk, was unconscious when placed in the jail, and he never woke up. Harold's brother showed up a few days later to identify the body. He said that George Harold was actually Andrew Vole, who often had drunken fits. He had been afraid that this would happen. After his death, the true story of George Harold was told. About 1892, at the age of 19, he had drifted into Columbus, Indiana and started working at the waterworks. He wanted a reputation, and a friend suggested that he start out as a boy tramp. The story continued. A sweater was secured on which the words, the original boy tramp, were lettered, and Harold left Columbus and took the long trail. Supposedly, he was making a circuit of the globe, but he never got very far from Columbus, Indiana, returning two or three times a year. He was never anything but a tramp, but that was his ambition in life, and he was proud of it. He had enough clippings from city papers about himself to fill an extra-large scrapbook. He always brought back two to three dilapidated grips full of junk, and his imagination was so good that each piece of junk had its story. The man was harmless. Frank Colburn of Maine, known as the Yankee Tourist, started his walk around the world from New York City in 1896 going east to west. He was one of the very few who was not walking for a wager with stipulations of poverty. He said he was doing it to study human nature and improve his health through exercise. He hoped to reach Paris for the exposition of 1900, and he said he was in no hurry. Coburn was a newspaper reporter, but also a talented and renowned songwriter. He was famous for writing the music and lyrics for Only a Fern, which he wrote in 1895. It was about finding a fern in his late mother's Bible, marking the parable of the prodigal son. In West Virginia, it was observed, The Yankee tourist is an entertaining talker, and his experiences are well worth hearing. He wants to see the globe, gain knowledge of customs and devices of this strange world. After seven months, in Omaha, Nebraska, Colburn was arrested for begging in the streets, but released when he showed the court that he was seeking donations to ship home a package of songs and books that he had written. Colburn's walk was viewed as highly credible. At Grand Junction, Colorado, it was written, The gentleman is not one of the gushing globetrotters who had periodically passed through here. He was a definite, laudable object in view, and he never swerves for a moment from attaining it. His songs are nicely printed and are a valuable contribution to musical literature. At San Francisco, he was unable to find passage to China. He joined the California Volunteers in 1898 when the Spanish-American War broke out, and he hoped to be sent to the Philippines where he could then leave the service and continue his walk. But he was kept in California on heavy artillery coastal duty. 
One day, a friend of his told him that he resembled Uncle Sam. Colburn decided it was his birthright and trademark. Legend has it that Uncle Sam was a real person, a meatpacker in Troy, New York in the 1800s. But curator Grady Turner says the later images calling Americans to military service, to save, to buy, and in other ways give of themselves to their nation are the ones that made him the national symbol. Colburn had not given up his world walk and headed north towards Seattle hoping to catch a steamer to Japan. He donned the persona and the costume of Uncle Sam. In Oregon, it was observed, Without the customary makeup, Colburn is an excellent representation of Uncle Sam. It takes all kinds of people to make up the world, and Colburn is one of them, one we feel younger for meeting, whether a crank or not. Colburn reached Seattle and tried to stow away on a steamship, but was discovered and thrown off. He probably should have taken off his Uncle Sam costume. He went to Victoria, Canada, where he met with a similar reception. He knew that he was out of time to reach Paris for the World's Fair, so in July 1900 he decided to start heading back to New York in a go-as-you-please manner, riding or walking, stopping for lectures, and hiring out for advertisements. He would put himself on display in store windows to advertise goods. In 1904, Coburn was back walking around the world claiming that he was the original Uncle Sam and had walked across America and back. I love working for Uncle Sam. I love working for Uncle Sam. Let me know just who I am. Let me know just who I am. He lectured about the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. He made it as far as St. Louis, Missouri. In 1917, he started yet another walk to California, still dressed as Uncle Sam. As he went along, he performed a vaudeville act as the original Uncle Sam. It became very successful. He didn't end up in California, but for the rest of World War I, he promoted Liberty Loans as Uncle Sam. In 1921, Colburn was on a very strange east-to-west walk. Along the way, he was walking a route that on a map formed the words, Uncle Sam. Too bad he didn't have a GPS to put it on Strava. Colburn's fame as Uncle Sam continued for years. At age 71 in 1929, he claimed that he was the Uncle Sam with a pointing finger on the familiar World War I poster captioned, Uncle Sam Wants You. Frank Colburn died on January 4, 1932 in a veterans hospital in Missouri at the age of 73. Even boys were affected by the frenzy. Three Oklahoma boys recently started off to walk around the world. They got 15 miles and then returned home to get something to eat. Starting these jaunts naked had turned into quite a fad. In Wisconsin, it was reported, Gust Johnson was found in the woods in a nude condition preparatory to starting to walk around the world. The case is being investigated. By the end of 1896, some newspaper men were tired of the Globetrotters. These erratic specimens of our common humanity were novelties once, and as such were interesting. But the novelty is all gone now. 
and their invasion of private offices in their endeavor to work schemes by which they are to garner their thousands has become so tiresome and so frequent that it makes men long for a refreshing visit from a book agent or a lightning rod man. Some tried hard to persuade the masses to wise up. We welcome the fake with open pocketbooks. As a farmhand working hard and giving good value, he is not encouraged nor helped. But the day that he announces his determination to attempt a foolish performance, to do something that is a wicked waste of energy, we open our purses and encourage him in his folly. We have no assurance that he will half accomplish his foolish walk around the world, but take his word for it and shower our money accordingly. Some towns in the Midwest were through with the walkers. The next tramp who arrives in town carrying a flag or a letter to the mayor of Dead Beats Rest or a note to the chief of Easy Street, all of which necessitates a tramp around the world, should be arrested and put to work on a rock pile. Nine out of ten of this variety of globetrotters are deadbeats and worse than common tramps. They do not go around the world and never intended to do so, but simply tramp and make money at it. Stay tuned for the next episode when I will cover serious attempts to walk around the world. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. Mm-hmm.